had a conversation this evening in which um, something came up that reminded me that I'm supposed to ask you if you can hear me. So, can you hear me? Okay. And if I fade out, which I sometimes do, just get agitated and then I will know that I need to speak a little louder. So I thought I would return today to one of the fairly basic teachings of Buddhist practice um, and talk about it for a while and then um, depending on how the time plays out um, I'm hoping there'll be a fairly substantial amount of time for questions Um, and I guess maybe a little parenthetically I want to say some of you may have come expecting to see nuns tonight and I know that's what was originally on the website Clearly, unless things have changed dramatically in my life, that is not true. Um, And so you have to come back tomorrow night for the nuns, um, or Saturday. So, that said, what I wanted to talk about was what are commonly known as the four foundations of mindfulness. And I do this because it's such a basic teaching for the actual doing of this practice. And I do it because I find myself over and over again reflecting on them and considering um, how is it that I use them and work with them pretty much on a daily basis in my sitting practice. So these are sometimes, they're sometimes called the four foundations. Sometimes they're called the four domains of mindfulness. Sometimes they're called the parameters of mindfulness. There's probably a few others that I haven't mentioned and that I'm not bringing to mind immediately. But you can see that that each of those names implies something slightly different about what it is that we're talking about. The foundation notion, sort of like this is what your mindfulness is built on, and this is so if you work with these four, then you'll be able to build your mindfulness, the domains have more of a sense of, well, if you're in them then and inhabiting them, then you're in mindfulness parameters, a little bit more a sense of delineation. So these four areas are the body, which includes the breath, the notion that your all of your experience has a feeling tone, the word in Pali is Vedna, which is so that your, your, the feeling tone is its pleasantness or unpleasantness or neutrality. It has nothing to do with emotions. The third is all of the things that go on in your mind and heart, obviously a fairly busy place on occasion. And then the fourth is sometimes called the dharmas, and that's the, the things that you begin to see and to understand as you do this practice. The understandings that come, the truth, if you will, where dharma sometimes means truth. So I like to think of the foundation of the body as sort of the the foundation of the foundations or the domain of the domains. It's, It's so important to be in your bodies. And I imagine if we polled the room, we would find out that pretty much everyone here spent at least a chunk of today someplace else other than in your body. I'm reminded of a 
quote that Jack Cornfield likes to use that, that comes from, um, I think it's from Ulysses, about uh, Mr. Duffy, who lived a short distance outside of his body. And many of us often live a short distance outside of our bodies. You know, or, or at least if we're in the body, we're in it from a, like about here to here, and everything down below um, we don't pay much attention to. And the Buddha, in stressing inhabiting this foundation of mindfulness, is stressing that how important it is to actually take the time to be in your body, to be consciously in your body, to give your attention to the body, to notice what's going on there. And truly, I sometimes think if you did nothing else, it would be a great practice. You would learn so much just from being in the body. And the other thing, of course, that's really wonderful is that bodies love it. Bodies really seem to respond very well when we take the time to actually sit for 10, 20, 40, 60 minutes and give your attention to the body and you're not doing anything about it. It's not like when you're going to the gym or yoga class or qigong or any of those things. You're just noticing what's there. You're noticing heat and cold and pressure and pain and movement and stillness and itching and hearing and all of the different things that happen in the body. And when you do that, you are mindful. That's the really good news, is that the body is absolutely the shortcut to mindfulness and it's also the shortcut to the present moment. When you're giving your attention to your body, then you're here and you're now. And a lot of the time, we're not either here or now. And so we do this. Sometimes some of you have done it systematically with um, sweeping the body as it's taught in Goenka's lineage of practice. Sometimes we do it with actually moving the body, practices of walking, for example, which we do at our retreat days or if you said a longer period of retreat. All retreats include movement as well as sitting still. And we teach it sometimes in mindful movement classes like the one that Marcy teaches that happens just before this one on Thursday nights. And so gradually, gradually, we learn to give our attention to the body. The simplest way to do that, and the way that we often begin, is by giving your attention to the breath. And resting your attention, following the breath, noticing how the breath feels. You know, I, I, when I say that, I think, I can imagine, it's a long time ago now, but um, before I began to do this practice, if somebody had said to me, well, how does your breath feel? I would have thought, what a strange question. You know, how, why would you even notice how you, I mean, I breathe, right? It just goes in, it goes out. End of story. It's a good thing to do, because if you don't do it, you're in trouble. So breathe. But noticing exactly what the sensations are, and then I think a little further along in my practice to an interview once at a retreat, um, when things had gotten pretty quiet, and then my teacher said, okay, now I want you to go out and find six new things that you've never noticed before about the breath. 
I thought, you have to be kidding. Six new things about the breath that I've never seen before. But of course, when I really paid attention, which of course I really had to do in order to find the six new things, not only did I find six things that I hadn't noticed, but I also, of course, got a great deal more quiet and concentrated because I really had to pay attention in order to do that. So that's one of the things that giving our attention to the body does, is it also begins to focus our awareness just into this experience that calls itself the body. And then many insights arise. We see impermanence, we see how insubstantial it is. Sometimes we become deeply aware of the sense that there isn't any solid self in there, it can't be found. (coughs) All kinds of experiences happen in the body. So that's, you know, particularly for those of you who are new, this is a really wonderful place to spend a lot of time. And for those of you who have been practicing for many, many years, it's a really wonderful place to practice and to spend a lot of time because it's such a rich foundation. And in, in many ways, the others kind of build on that. So I don't think you can actually have a lot of mindfulness in in the second or third foundation if you don't have it as well in the body. So then the second foundation is the one that says, notice that your experience is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Now this seems so simple. It's almost like, huh? But it's actually one of the most important places in practice because this is the place where the cycle of suffering picks up and goes around one more time. Because when you don't notice that your experience is pleasant, what happens? The mind takes off, right? It's really yummy. Great sitting. I think I'll go up to Spirit Rock soon and sit a retreat. Maybe I'll sit the month-long retreat. I wonder if they have any openings left. I wonder how much money it costs. And who's going to take care of the cat? And pretty soon, you're planning your month-long retreat all because you didn't notice that you were having a pleasant sitting. And are you here? No. You're off in your story. And of course, likewise, if you come in some evening and it's really unpleasant and there's lots of noise in the hallway and it's cold and you're not feeling very well and pretty soon you're thinking about, you know, there are better things to do with my time and I could have signed up for a massage and who shall I go to and I wonder how much that's going to cost me and maybe I could have one a week instead of coming to sitting and then you're off planning what you're going to do all because you didn't notice that it wasn't pleasant. And this is the place where we tend to repeat cycles. It's very, very important, even though it feels simple. And of course, if it's not either pleasant or unpleasant, if you're having a sort of a neutral experience, sometimes we get bored or we get sleepy and we check out in that way. And neutral is actually a good place to practice just being with something without being pulled by its pleasantness or unpleasant and learning the art of balance. So it's a very, very important foundation of mindfulness. And when you hear it referred to as the foundation of feeling, don't get fooled, as I did for a long time in the early years of my practice, thinking that that meant feelings like emotions. It really has to do with the quality of your experience. And then the third is the foundation that for many of us is really interesting. And I think that's partly because we're such a psychological culture. 
And it's the place of the mind and the heart. And beginning to notice what's going on. Notice what's happening in the mind. Notice what's happening in the heart. So often, we don't notice what's happening in the mind and the heart. We're just in it. I'm so depressed. Or I'm so angry. Or I'm so into planning my vacation. And, and we just sort of go along with that flow that is that emotion or that mind state, and we're not really noticing it. And when we sit on the cushion, part of what we're doing, and this foundation, this domain, is noticing and not necessarily doing anything. And what, you, what begins to happen when we notice and give attention to is it becomes a little less um, personal and we're a little less involved in it and we're just noticing (coughs) and you know it's really handy actually out there in the world to notice what's happening in the mind and the heart whoa I'm really angry oh that's interesting and then maybe so you notice your anger you're not slamming the phone down or storming out of the room or doing all of those things, hitting the delete button or the send button, all of those things that we do sometimes when we're angry. We're noticing that we're angry. And that creates a little window of space. That's the place where you can go, I wonder what the skillful action would be here. You know, And it might be, I think I'll file that email as a draft. Or it might be, saying, you know, I think I'll talk to you later, call you back in an hour. Or it might be, let's stop talking for a few minutes and take a deep breath. Or my husband sometimes says to me, I think maybe we need to take a walk. That usually means, you know, let's chill a little. And doing all of those things that that come from noticing the state of the mind or the heart. And then figuring out what it is that you need to do. So mindfulness of all of the many things that happen, and there are many, many, many states in the mind and the heart. I forget how many there are in the Buddhist psychological list, but it's, it's a lot. And so we begin to see what's, as we give our attention to the mind and the heart, just, hmm, what a shambles it is sometimes, how crazy it is sometimes, how many thoughts there are. It's not that you're meditating to try to not think necessarily. We're really just encouraging you to notice the thoughts. And then as you notice them, um, working with what you do next. And then in the last of the foundations, the one of the dharmas, that's where you begin to see, you know. And so you might see some of the teachings about suffering and the nature of suffering. I mean, after all, if you sit on your cushion long enough, you are going to see the places where you hurt and where you suffer. But you also might see the places where, oh, look, I'm not suffering so much. And what's the difference? And so sometimes then you notice, oh, you know, the causes, or sometimes you notice the kinds of things that free you up from suffering. Or maybe you notice, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, you notice, oh, it's not, everything's really impermanent. There's nothing that stays. That's one of the core teachings of the Buddha. 
He said, that's the one. If you see that, you have saved yourself so much time and energy and work. Or you see there isn't anything solid that I can put my finger on and say it's me. Or maybe you begin to notice the things that get in the way of your mindfulness, the hindrances and that kind of thing. Or maybe you notice the factors that support your waking up. And all of those are foundations for your mindfulness as you come to be familiar with them, if, as you know what alleviates suffering or what encourages it, as you know what blocks your mindfulness or what supports your awakening, then you can actually use that knowledge to deepen your practice and to see more. So these are all different parts, different aspects, parameters, foundations, domains of your mindfulness. And it can be really helpful. Take just a moment while I'm talking and just notice your body. Just take a little moment. Oh yeah, body. You know, notice your posture. Notice how it's feeling. That's the first of the foundations. You might notice the breath in there while you're at it. That's a way of fine-tuning your attention sometimes with the with the breath, that's part of that foundation. Now notice, what's the, what's the Vedana of your experience? What's its feeling tone? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? If it's either of those, is there any little pull in the mind, probably not because we're talking about it, that says more or let's get out of here? Or is it neutral? And if it's neutral, can you still be with it with lots of attention and interest and friendliness? Just this simple experience. How's your mind and your heart? What's going on in there? Is it real thinky tonight? Just an agitated mind constantly spewing out all kinds of thoughts and plans and comments and judgments. Sometimes if you look underneath that agitation, you'll find that the heart is a little anxious, actually. And that can be helpful. Or maybe you're really sad tonight, or afraid. So just notice, <coughs> what's, what's the state? Can you just be with that mind and that heart, just as it is? Just, just as a mother sometimes holds her child, when the child is having a really rough day. You know, just the way you are. And then you might reflect for a moment, what have you noticed? Maybe not in this sitting, maybe over many sittings. You know, what what have you learned about the nature of your suffering and its causes and its end? Or what have you learned about your anger or your your greed or your restlessness or your sleepiness or your doubt that gets in the way of your practice or what have you learned about some of the factors that support you know the deepening of awakening your mindfulness itself and interest and um, tranquility and concentration those kinds of things and so just noticing that probably every one of you here has seen something you've begun to understand something about the mind and the heart and that is part of your own awakening. <clears throat> so I really encourage you to use these. They can be wonderful to just run through. If you're sitting there and, and things are pretty quiet, sometimes the thought will come up in my practice, oh, let's just go through the four foundations and 
sort of see where I am with them in this particular moment and take a few minutes to do that. That's a fine thing to do with a period of meditation. And it trains you to begin to give them your attention. They are the, I, the foundation word is the word that I like because it really gives me a sense of this is the bedrock, this is the place that I build my practice on, this is where when I rest my practice in these areas, then I know that I will be deepening and growing and building my mindfulness. So I think I will stop there and see if we have some practice questions tonight. Let's stay with the four foundations at least for a while and see if that's helpful to anyone. Does this make sense? Yeah? Sometimes I don't know, you know, when I give these talks. It's like, oh, I hope it hung together and had sentences that people could understand. So, please. Could you talk a little bit about um, the 32 parts of the body practice and disenchantment as it relates to... So are you all familiar with what Julia is asking? She's asking about the 32 parts of the body. So that's the class. Some of you may know Bob Stahl's class on the 32 parts of the body. And it's a very basic teaching. The 32 parts are listed, actually, in the um, Satipatthana Sutta, which is the sutta on the foundations of mindfulness. And um, probably some of you, can I could probably get a little chorus going if I wanted to, you know, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, and it goes on through the the 32 parts of the body that were known in the time of the Buddha. They, they, I'm sure they knew of a few other parts that are not listed, for there are no sexual organs and that kind of things that are there. But a number of really interesting parts are. And the idea is that you work with the practice as a recitation, reciting it forward and backwards and forwards and backwards and all of that kind of thing. And Bob has really taught it in a wonderful way, which is also as a mindfulness practice. I've learned so much from being with him when we've taught this together. And what it does is, even with not including all of the parts of the body that we know about, and he always encourages people to add their own lists if they want, um, it really anchors your attention. Just It seems a little... Like, how can this possibly happen? But it actually is true, at least as long as you're being a good kid about it and really doing the practice, that as you work your way through these different parts and really take a moment, you know, oh, head hair. I mean, how often, you know, if you go to this, the kids from the tattoo studio tonight and say, you know, how's your head hair? Um, they probably wouldn't know what we were talking about. Who feels their head hair? So just beginning to realize, oh, yeah, head hair. You know, or body hair, or nails, or teeth. And to sense into them actually deepens your mindfulness. What it also does, so the other um, question was about disenchantment. And disenchantment, uh, Naroda, I think, is the Pali word. Yes. And um, so this is... It's, it's sometimes been translated as disgust. 
So that doesn't seem so useful, actually, in our culture, because most of us are already pretty disgusted with our bodies. But we are a little bit enchanted by them. So Bhikkhu Bodhi is one of the great Buddhist scholars who is currently alive, and he has started to use the word disenchantment more, with that sense of loosening the hold. I mean, the, the image that the Buddha gives is it's like you're, a, you, you know, all these different parts. You're a sack, and you're just filled with rice and beans and millet and peas and head hair and body hair and nails and teeth and skin and it's all there for a while and then it's all going to dissipate after a while and it so it's it's working at at not being particularly attached mm-hmm. yeah i mean bob has some amazing figures and i don't remember them of just how much money for example people spend on beauty products every year you know or the spa or plastic surgery. That's of the non I'm not talking about the kind that people really need, but the you know, the non essential variety. And we are very enchanted. How much money people spend in hair salons, you know, and I mean I'm I'm guilty, you know. So um, we don't just let our hair grow out any old which way and come to Vipassana Santa Cruz on a Thursday night and say, would you mind trimming my bangs, you know? We just don't do that. So we are enchanted, and it's helpful not to be. So with the first foundation, when we, when we think of the, when we're meditating on being in our body, uh-huh. does this idea of disenchantment then help us be more true about how we're feeling about our body, about the feeling tone and about the... Um, If I understand your question rightly, I think the answer is yes. That it helps us both... I mean, bodies are wonderful, right? We are all able to do this practice because we have a body. And the body holds our mind and our heart. You, we wouldn't. I mean, I don't know what we would be if there if there weren't bodies. But you know, we have bodies, and that does seem to be their function. And so, it's important to be respectful, and to take care of them, and to encourage them to stick around for a while so we can wake up. But it's also important not to despise them, and it's important to be able to, when the time comes that they start dissolving to work with that as skillfully as possible. And to understand that it's not bad that we're aging or ill may not be what we want. We may do everything, particularly in the case of illness, to counter it and to get well again, but sometimes you can't. And then the dissolving continues to happen. So to not... it's So it's to have... You know, the Buddha, we talk a lot in Buddhism about the middle way, right? So it really is that middle way, not, not, not despising nor trying to adore it and make it perfect. Imagine how adolescence would be if we could convey that, huh? How hard it was for all of us for so long wanting our bodies to be perfect. And how 
much suffering there is. And probably well into our adult lives, maybe even up until the end of them for most of us, because we get so caught by some, you know, if you're not if you're not a gray-haired senior citizen riding on the back of a motorcycle with your beautiful gray hair blowing in the breeze and, you know, blissfully happy, then there's something wrong with you. But that's not how most of us get old. Any other questions? That was fun. (laughs) Clear? Could you take this home and practice with it? Yeah? Please. Could you just say a little bit more about, I mean, the third foundation and the fourth foundation are always, they're so deep, there's so much depth. Uh-huh. And I, um, if you could just talk a little bit more about maybe the third foundation, kind of mindfulness of the... the mind and heart? Of the mind and heart, yeah. I mean, like, would that also be considered inquiry, or is it like seeing, you know, just like di- uh, dis... dis- Detaching from the thinking process, seeing the thinking process as a thinking process. You know what I mean? Like I think the say, answer to all of that is yes. Okay. Um, so it's, it, it is inquiry practices. Inquiry could certainly be part of it. Inquiry could be part of any of these practices. Mm-hmm. I mean, take so inquiry is an active, a little more active investigation. It's not. It's not our sitting practice of just bare attention, being with whatever is. With inquiry, you actually you move into a the body or to the mind or the heart and you're really trying to inquire into what is happening here. Sometimes the monks have a practice that they like to teach which is I think kind of fun which if you're sitting and you've gotten relatively still then you have either a question or a hot emotional situation that you drop in. You know, you're really pissed off at somebody. Drop it in. And then you do that quite purposely, and you watch what happens in the mind and the heart when you drop that particular situation in. Like, oh, look at that. You know, a tsunami. You know, and you notice. Or maybe you notice the contraction. Or whatever. And so you you can do that kind of inquiry. Psychological work is its own form of inquiry, I think. And, and so sometimes you might find that you have a repeated state of the mind and the heart that you don't understand, some anger, some obsession, some something. And so you take it outside of your practice in order to investigate it, in order to figure out how to be with it. It's also true, of course, you can take the states of the mind and the heart and you can take them back to the foundation of the body because you can feel them in your body as well. All of them have a felt bodily sense to them. So there's a lot. It's a very complex area. And I think the most important thing is is beginning to see that we don't have to just because I think it or feel it does not necessarily mean that it's true or worth listening to. And that was a huge, huge insight for me and when it finally came in my practice. I don't know that it's fully arrived yet, but, you know, it's one to keep working on. Yeah, please, Leela. Uh, so, kind of with that mind and heart and body, where do the three centers come in? The body center, the heart center, the mind center? 
Eugene Cash is deeply influenced by Hamid Ali and the Ridwan school and Sufi practice. So I don't know that the Buddha particularly talks about centers in the body. Hamid does. So, but body, mind, and heart, you could probably make a case for the body being the first of the foundations and the mind and the heart being the third and maybe a bit of the fourth. Please. please. Um, what Lord. were the six things you discovered about your breath? What were they? <laughs> <laughs> you and, want me to remember? Yeah, it was a long well, time ago. And um, I experienced a lot of times my breath as being very kind of truncated and limited and hard to discover more about it. At the time, I was following my breath a lot in my nostrils or I was following it in my nostrils, I wasn't following it anywhere else. Um, So, and one of the pluses to following your breath in the nostrils is that there are so many different sensations. The movement of the air over the upper lip, one kind of sensation that goes in the nostrils. You can play around with, you know, can you feel the hairs in your nose as they blow in the breeze? The answer is yes, actually you can. Um, noticing that there's a change as the air gets warmer and moves up into the nostrils and different kinds of, you know, and then how is it as you go out? There's a lot to see, and some of that was what I saw. Actually, this was probably 20 years ago, so I don't I don't remember all of it at this point. Um, but it was very, very interesting. And it's, it's a useful kind of instruction to to look at, well, what have I not noticed about the breath? I can I find one thing I've never noticed before about the breath? Just as a, by the way, the downside to following the breath in the, at the tip of the nose or in the nostrils is that for some people it also puts you too much in your head. And so some people prefer either the belly or the whole body breathing. I, there was a second part to your question. Did I, I think I missed uh-huh. it. We'll make it into a comment again, and I'll comment on your comment. Well, a lot of times when I'm paying attention to the breath, it feels so small uh-huh. and subtle. Uh-huh, right. And, um, and it's hard to either stay with it or just enter into it to find out, like to make it right. feel more of my body right. or, you know. If <laughs> the breath does get very subtle sometimes, and if it gets very, very quiet and very, very <coughs> subtle, you have a couple of choices. You can be with the, uh, the awareness of the body as it's sitting and just this little uh, of the breath that happens as it does. Or you can let your mindfulness be a little broader and a little more open and a little more spacious as long as you don't wander up. And if you're really quiet, which you might be if your breath gets that subtle, then you may be able to stay with that open, spacious awareness for a while without having to kind of root it really consciously in the breath or the body or the Vedana. But if it begins to wander off at all, then you'd want to come back into some kind of rootedness. Yeah? This is fun. We could sit a whole retreat. One more and then we'll stop. Okay. Um, how do you tease see whether something is comfortable or uncomfortable or neutral away from what the ego thinks? 
That is a good question. And I don't know that we always can. And I actually, as I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure that it matters too much. Because if you're experiencing it as pleasant, then that's the place where you're likely to go get filled with desire and attachment and go after it. It doesn't matter whether it's the ego or you know whether you're deluded or not. It's just that you're going after it. So let's get back here first, and then you can work on is this delusion or not. And the same thing would be true the other way. Yeah. Don't get bogged down in too much complication. You know? <laughs> okay, I think that's enough. I, I want to make a couple of announcements and then we'll do some loving kindness practice. Um, <clears throat> as I mentioned earlier, we are having a visit from the Saranaloka nuns. These are the nuns who are affiliated with. Um, Amravati in England and Abayagiri here and up in Ukiah which, and that's Ajahn Amro's monastery so these are western women um, who are in Ajahn Chah's lineage and um, some of you are aware there's been quite a lot of kerfluffle this fall about the ordination of women and the full ordination these women are not fully ordained although um, their particular community has made every effort to create a sustainable nuns community with a great deal of dignity. And so they are coming here to California. They've currently settled in San Francisco and they are looking for some kind of a permanent home to have a community of nuns here in the West in Northern California. And they are quite purposely keeping a certain amount of distance between them and the men's monastery up in Ukiah in order to give them more independence and autonomy. So it's, a, it's an interesting conversation that's happening. These are interesting women. Tomorrow night they will be here at 5.30 for, as I said earlier, a little bit of informal hanging out time. We'll be offering tea to them and there'll be some snacky things for people who come to be with them. At 7, there'll be a more formal period of time where we'll have some sitting, and there'll be a more formal Q&A kind of time. They may offer some simple Dharma teachings. I don't know. They wanted to keep it simple and unstructured. And then on Saturday, from 9.30 until 5, they're offering a day of retreat here at the center. Um, Both of them, of course, are completely Donna. All of the Donna will go to support the nuns. And um, we're asking that if you come tomorrow night and want to bring some cookies, that would be really great. That will be helpful. Or cheese and crackers or whatever you like for snacks. Um, And if you come on Saturday, we're doing lunch as a kind of potluck because we'll be offering food to them. They, They need to have their food offered to them. They can't just stroll over to New Leaf and buy their lunch. So you can stroll over to New Leaf and buy lunch for them if you would like, and that's effectively what we're going to be doing. So Claire, I hope a number of you will come. They're remarkable women, and we have a long tradition here at Vipassana Santa Cruz of having a nice connection with the various monastic communities. Later on, next month, Ayatata Aloka, who is a nun over in Fremont, who was involved in the ordination that happened in Australia, will be here on Thursday, February 11th to teach and to talk about that. And then Ajahn Tanasanti, who was with the Amravati group and is now 
separated herself out from them but is still practicing as a nun will be with us in March for some teaching on Thursday and a talk on Friday and a day long. So we're going to get quite the varied picture and I'm really excited that we're going to be able to host them all and have a sense of what each of these different groups of women is trying to do. I also just wanted to mention because somehow um, this escaped the flyer world um, on Sunday, January 31st Marcy Reynolds is doing a day long on Qigong and mindfulness and I'm sure there will be flyers shortly so happens once in a while um, and then just last to mention the whole Donna thing maybe would you like to talk a little you're, I think you're the board person here again tonight is this true? Martin's always well, the I'm, board person I'm happy person. to talk about the new Donna baskets um, we do have two of them one of them supports the sangha and so our rent and the like um, gets paid for through the contributions we put into that basket and then the second basket we have is for supporting the teachers and the teachings. And uh, I guess it's worth saying that you know we don't um, actually pay any of our teachers anything, that the only sustenance they get from this organization is through the Donna that we put in that basket. So give generously as part of the practice. Thank you. Okay, so let's end with just a little bit of loving-kindness practice. Actually, I'm sitting here looking straight at Jason, who's also one of our board members, as well as our teachers, so <laughs> forgot that when I was mentioning Martin. Um, so let's sit comfortably, bring some awareness into your body. The practice of loving kindness is to meet ourselves and all other beings with friendliness and kindness and goodwill. So this fits right in with our mindfulness practice. So just take a moment being with your body again and see if you can extend into your own being some sense of friendliness, wishes for your own happiness and peace. Some wanting to come to an ending of suffering. Really holding yourself with all kinds of goodwill. And if you find that that's not what's there, that's interesting to see and possibly will be helpful to see that. So don't despair when anything but friendliness comes up. And then take a moment and let yourself be aware of everyone in the room, people to your right and to your left and in front of you and behind you. And knowing that each person here wants to be happy and wants to come to an end of suffering, to extend your goodwill to each one of them. Again, wishing for peace and ease of well-being. Let your awareness go out from this room. Go out perhaps first to the people whom you know and love. 
holding them with your goodwill and kindness, wishing them every good thing. If there's any person that you're having difficulty with, to bring them to mind and to plant the seed, the hope that at some point (coughs) there will be ease and friendliness between you. And then let our awareness go on out into the world, perhaps most particularly towards all of the suffering that's happening in Haiti now, the ongoing distress and despair, extending our wishes for healing and the ending of that enormous pain. And then on out to all people, all of the creatures of the earth and the air and the water, to all beings in all directions, in all realms, all beings unknown and unknown. And then last of all, we gather up all of the goodness of our evening together, all of its merit, and we offer this goodness for all of these beings, that all beings may come to awakening, not one left behind. Philadelphia area, um, but then I'll be back. And I'd like to invite you to take a moment this evening and find somebody near you whom you don't know and say hello. Please. Um, I'd like to request um, that anyone give me a ride down Delaware after Bay Street. A ride for Eric down um, Delaware? Okay, I found one. Okay. okay.